Are you underutilizing one of the most powerful restaurant marketing tools on the planet? What do 92 million monthly Yelp searchers see when they land on your page? Is your content accurate and attention grabbing? Are you using every conversion tool possible to set yourself apart? Yelp is here to help. Go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash profile to sign up for a one-on-one with a specialist that will review your Yelp page and share tips to help you stand out. Again, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash profile to supercharge your Yelp page today. Now here we go. I'm never going to say, hey, employees you're not going to have benefits anymore because we need to, as executives, make more money or we need to cater to this client who wants a lower price point. I would rather not have a company. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Idealism is great. We all want to be dream employers offering dream jobs to amazing people who love our restaurant as much as we do. But that's rarely the reality of our situation. Whose fault is that? And is there a way to make that vision a reality? Today we chat with Gabriel Cole, a former chef who's using his values to not only inform the way he does business, but also to decide who he does business with. In this conversation, we tackle the obstacles involved in becoming the employer we want to be and what it takes to attract the employees we want to hire. Well, I had a very unconventional education. I went to culinary school my junior year in high school. I was not a traditional learner. I'm a very kinesthetic guy, and traditional school was not my bag. So I was just having such a tough time. And my sophomore year, I was ready to drop out. My dad was on the school board of a vocational school, which I thought was just for dropouts. I thought that was the only way you could get in. And he was like, no, actually, you can proactively sign up. I went and checked out that in a graphic design program. And I decided to get into culinary because I liked making chocolate chip cookies at the time. And it changed my life forever. You know, I've been in food since I was a junior in high school. and I graduated high school, thankfully, and I went to one year of hotel and restaurant management school in Vermont, which is where I grew up. And I dropped out of that after a year because I was like, I don't want to learn how to open a restaurant from a textbook. That's fucked. I'm never going to actually get the experience. So I ended up moving to Atlanta, Georgia, and I opened up my first brick and mortar at the age of 19. It was a Jewish kosher deli that failed miserably. Josh. I mean, just epic fail. (laughs) But it was one of those experiences where I learned a ton and I got the bug for entrepreneurship. And I started actually my first business was a chocolate truffle business in high school as part of entrepreneur class. So I'd had a little bit of taste, but it wasn't nearly the magnitude of like opening a brick and mortar. It was a 65 seat restaurant. And basically I had 15 years as a professional chef. My last real job in the kitchen was working at Google. I worked in their food program. So I worked for Bon Appetit Management Company, which is under Compass Group. And I worked at Google when they were, this was 06. So it was before the 08 crash. They were about 20,000 people. So they were like big, but not nearly the level they are today. And it introduced me to this whole world of unlimited checkbook 
culture and data-driven approach, like you were just saying, organizational structure, which I really didn't know and haven't seen much in any food business outside of tech food businesses or larger restaurant groups or management companies. And from there, I realized like there's a real opportunity to do something differently in food and as a food management company. I think Bon Appetit does a lot of things great. I also think as with anything, any company, there's always ways to improve. So I kind of set out to build something unique from there. And I was a consultant for many years, just working and basically supporting food and farm entrepreneurs. And I stumbled into Airbnb, not knowing who they were or what they did. They just said, we have some desire to build a kitchen eventually. And I said, okay, I think I can do that. Never having designed a kitchen before, but you just learn on the fly. And so I joined as a consultant. And for the first year, me and my co-founder, Gavin, were there as consultants. And then the goal was to like build it to something that actually we could pass off to a director of the food program. But a couple of my colleagues encouraged me to apply. And I thought, why not? I applied, I got the job full time. And at that time, Fair Resources was still a consultancy and we were bringing on additional partner and we were like, let's just go dormant while I take this job. This could open up a lot of different possibilities for us. And so I was there for over two years as a full time employee and changed my life and really taught me a lot about culture because I was seeing it at a whole different level. You know, I was a sous chef, executive chef at Google, but at Airbnb, I was the director of the food program and I was an actual Airbnb employee. And they were in the process of building their culture at that moment. And so I got to learn things that I didn't even know existed being a food entrepreneur before then. Coming off of Airbnb 2015, I decided there's a market for values-driven food programs because people were coming and touring Airbnb and wanting to see what kind of program we had built. And so I rejoined Fair Resources, which is now called Just Fair, in 2015. And we started making our first meals in 2016 and kind of pivoted from being a consulting firm to being a food production company. We actually, our first ever account at Fair Resources was for a high school in the Mission District in San Francisco. For three months, another miserable fail. We burned through 150K of seed money. That was the only traditional equity money we've raised. It was a convertible note. In three months, we blew all of our money, and the administration two weeks before Christmas asked us if we would reduce everyone's wages in order to try and make the P&L work. And that was one of my first real cultural moments myself that I said, you know what, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to choose the higher road and let's shut down since there's this break coming up on Christmas. We were able to manage severance for everyone and we walked away from it. It was destined to fail from the start. It was like an open campus. Kids could go anywhere they wanted, go eat at McDonald's. There was no way they were going to buy a $12 organically sourced whatever bowl when they could just walk off campus. And like what high schooler wants to stay on campus when it's an open campus, like, <laughs> eat the food, no matter how good it is on campus. So we learned a lot of valuable lessons through that experience. And we asked our management team to stay on because we were negotiating a contract with Twitch, which is a live streaming app. We were designing their kitchen, but they we were also in conversations to run a food program for them at one of their satellite offices. 
And then four months later, sure enough, we signed that contract and we brought back, I think it was like five of our six employees that had left during the account at the urban school. And we just started doing this thing for Twitch, you know, similar to what I had built at Airbnb and what I had done at Google, but it was worlds different because we were doing it on our own dime. Luckily with Twitch, it was a cost plus model. So they covered all the costs, plus they paid us a management fee, and it was sweet. We just kind of coasted for a couple years. They essentially wore a dream client. They had their own challenges, just like any client does. But when they finally built their kitchen and they decided to hire up one of our competitors, which isn't really our competitor because they're like a multinational conglomerate. We don't even run in the same circles, but they decided to hire the big boys. And we had had a little bit of foresight to say, like, we could start a catering company catering to offices before we lose this account. And so we did that in 2018. And we just kind of grew off of finding and following the right paths. I feel like entrepreneurs either have a vision and they see it and they chase it, or that vision is kind of presented in your lap and the market just kind of dictates the path that you need to take. And that's always been the case for us ladder, right? Like we've just kind of followed the lead of the market and really intuitively just kind of pivoted from business to business and account to account. And we had pretty rapid growth too. I mean, 2016 under the urban school, we made 550K. We grossed 550K. The following year, it was 1.8, 2.6, 5.2. In 2019, in our first profitable year, you know, and it was like minuscule, but we made a hundred grand and then COVID came. Of course, we were just getting over the hump. We had bootstrapped everything after we had burned through that 150K. We were in a considerable amount of debt, but nothing that we couldn't pay off. And then COVID hit and we went from 70 employees and doing about half a million dollars a month to three employees and doing about 20 to 30K a month because the consulting part of our business remained. And then we just decided we might as well see if we can keep the lights on and start doing emergency food relief work. And that was a pivot that we just kind of, again, on a whim and a prayer, like not knowing what we were getting ourselves into. A month after the pandemic shut us down, we decided to take our first round of PPP and launch our community kitchen charitable arm, which we've been still doing to this day. We've produced over 300,000 meals, dignified meals, we call them because we use good values behind producing those meals for you know our East Bay community who need access to good quality food. It's an amazing story. It's full of ups and downs. And the story itself isn't crazy, right? It is the story of most entrepreneurs. What I think makes the story exceptional, the reason I wanted to have you on the show is the way you've chosen to operate these businesses is from a moral standpoint. We all, as entrepreneurs, start businesses with an ideology that at some point you kind of begin to compromise based on the realities of your situation, all of the variables that are coming at you. It's really easy to be idealistic in the best of circumstances. It's really hard to maintain those ideals when times get tough. And as far back as 2016 and doing research, you very publicly drew a firm line in the sand and said, we're going to pay living wages. And when times are good and there's plenty of money, that's great, especially in like a cost plus model. But that also means based on what you're paying, that you're charging 
more than most. And so that also limits your ability as an entrepreneur to reach the masses, right? Because a lot of people out there, I would argue, especially a lot of people that are interested in corporate catering are very motivated by price and not necessarily culture. And their culture is in their company and they don't really care whether it's in your company too. And so I'm curious to know, one, even back in those early days, what did a living wage look like to you and what did it represent to you? Well, a living wage looked like something that we could be proud to say, we'll pay you this much and you can go and survive. Whether that's you have a family of three or you're a single person, I never wanted to shortchange anyone. And there were conversations had and it helped that I came from kitchens where I was getting paid different wages throughout my tenure at different companies. But ultimately, I wanted it to be something that we could be proud of. And that we could feel like if we were to ever apply to go work at that company, we would feel good about taking the job, right? And ideology, as you know, is a slippery slope. It's like, it doesn't matter how ideal you are. If you can't run a company, then the ideals don't matter for anything. But also, I've never had a desire to be in business purely for profits. That's never been a motivator for me. And... I think ego is the motivator of many evils. And I've seen a lot of people who got into business to make a lot of money, which is great, good for them. Kudos. That's just never been my big motivation. So a living wage looked like doing right by myself and others. And really the motivation was just trying to see something cultivated that I could be proud of in the world at large. I don't know if I answered the second part of your question. Well, what did it look like in practical application? Obviously, you're paying, you're paying above market, but you obviously had to structure the entire business around that belief. So how did it affect your pricing? What did you do to attract talent relative to the amount of money you were paying? How did you sell that to the people that ultimately had to foot that bill? Right. Well, it's always been a part of our value prop, right? We say, hey, company X it's important to us. It should be important to you. We don't quite wave the finger like that, but it's something along those lines, right? We stand for X, Y, and Z. And so do you want to put your dollars here? And we are a premium provider. We're not by any stretch the cheapest game in town. If you want that, you need to go somewhere else. But to be honest, Josh, the practicality of how it all works is an ever-evolving process, right? It's like we have not landed on this is the price, one size fits all, done and done, moving on. And of course, just like the pricing market works and the cost of goods work, employees' needs evolve and shift. And we need to keep catering to cost of living and what employees ultimately want. I mean, I really feel like this day and age, employees want everything under the sun. Sure. Me too. Right. Exactly. Everyone does. Right. (laughs) If you can have it all, why not ask for it all? So you want flexibility. You want unlimited time off. You want to progress in your career. You want to make good money. You want bonus structures. You want full benefits. You want all the things. And ultimately, I say that we're a people company first and we're a food company second. And it's that sort of ideal that's really driven us in large part. I mean, I'm a people person. I've always wanted to have something that I could be proud of, like I was saying. But the pricing issue is often a challenge. And I think a lot of companies say that they want to put their money where their mouth is, but actually selling it, companies buying it where we're pricing it, 
is an ongoing challenge, as is trying to define what should our margins be and how do we fit that within the market landscape of what actually people will and can afford. And I really hope that someday when we're more grown up that we can have a great marketing campaign about the true cost of food, because I really feel like we need to be touting the messages you've seen the article right about dirt candy and kind of starting to i think reem just had something too broadcasting their true cost of food that story in my mind needs to be told more so that we can be increasing living wage so that we can be paying farmers what they deserve for products and ranchers what they deserve i mean it's an ongoing conversation and it's not an art or a science from a pricing standpoint It's trying to find the constant balance of doing both and not pricing yourself out of the market. But we have always said, this is what we're unwilling to compromise on, right? I'm never going to say, hey, employees, you're not going to have benefits anymore because we need to, as executives, make more money or we need to cater to this client who wants a lower price point. I would rather not have a company. That's a very real possibility. If we weren't in the hospitality industry and I had you on because you pay a living wage and offer great benefits, including subsidized health care, like nobody would listen to the show because, I mean, in every other industry, that's just standard practice. They would say, well, that's not illegal. Like, And so <laughs> I feel like the fashion industry or at least sectors of the fashion industry have done a great job of showing what, what the true cost, the human cost of fast fashion is. But we still haven't gotten there with cheap food. And the reason is, like, not everyone needs that, like, blouse from Forever 21, but, like, everybody needs to eat. So I'm curious to know how you work it out in your own mind, because there is this interesting dichotomy where you can price yourself out of the market to where people can't eat your food, which is a dangerous place to be. And then on the other side, the people that you employ need to be able to afford eating your restaurant as well. So you've got to pay a living wage to compensate them as well. As you work to find the balance in your own business, which I would argue that catering probably has better margins than a full service restaurant, where do you see the future of this going, especially from like the consumer's perspective? Well, I hope that consumers will spend more as they have been, right? I mean, ever since the start of the organic movement, we've seen an uptick in what people will pay and for good reason. And I think cheap food is still paid for in masses, obviously, as is all the inputs that go into cheap food, right? And so I think we are having a kind of awakening as a culture on a number of different levels, right? It's not just with food, it's with so many things right now, where we're kind of asking why. Why does it happen and can it be done differently? And so that's in large part how I think about it in my mind. (laughs) And then I also know that it needs to translate into execution. So the way we've modeled it is it needs to work a certain scale from a margin standpoint. We never got into this thinking we can do 50 covers a day and we're good. The way we've modeled it is about a thousand meals a day across all the business units that we run. So if we can price things appropriately at a certain size and scale, then the model can work and we can start to make money. And as it expands, you know, it's all about ratios of scale in terms of how we've modeled it. And as we grow, we'll have more money to create better benefits, to pay out profit distributions to employees, to do things that we want to do well beyond the baseline, which I think are like 
full benefits, good perks at the office, opportunities for growth and wealth distribution and creation. But we also spend a lot of time doing market research and we look around and look at what competitors are charging too. And we're never pricing ourselves out of the market. And if we need to, we can turn on and off levers on certain light items as we've done traditionally throughout the five years that we've been making food, right? I mean, one of the big things we've done is like, if the owners are in a privileged place to be able to take deferred compensation or reduce salaries, then we'll do that for a little bit of time so that we can cover payroll or keep providing benefits. And so we just have made those sacrifices throughout the five years we've making food. And there's always ways. There's always compromises and concessions, but it's a never ending process too. I don't think you ever get to some point where you're like, this is the set wage we're going to pay. This is the set cost of goods sold. This is the set price point. It's a constant iteration of all the inputs to the pricing output. I'm going to quote you. You said, it's key not to stigmatize sick time. Our definition is inclusive of personal wellness days. We need to continually support people's need to take care of themselves. I agree. I'm sure everybody listening agrees to a certain degree. I'm curious to know what that looks like in practical application, though. Does that affect the way that you hire? Do you overhire to compensate? Do you overschedule to compensate? Because like, if you're sick, I certainly don't want you coming to work. I was actually vicious when it came to that because I feel like I'm frail. I feel like anytime anyone walked in with a cold, I would get that cold. So I was always a real stickler for that. But sometimes that meant that at 40 years old, I landed in the scullery washing dishes on a Saturday night, which was unfortunate because I think it's always most important to work on your business. And this is an industry where it's definitely really easy to get trapped in your business in perpetuity. And so what do your staffing levels look like to compensate for a philosophy like that? And how do you build a culture where that isn't abused? It's a great question. Also an ever-evolving process. I mean, <laughs> we, we, it's not like we have all the answers. When we're in the good window, yes, we overstaff. We've had the privilege a couple times to overstaff. We're not in a moment right now where we're overstaffed. And a big part of that is just because of the labor shortages. Even though we pay 22 bucks an hour starting and provide full benefits, we're still having trouble finding quality people. But yeah, I mean, it starts in the recruiting process and we have a very, very thorough recruiting and onboarding process. We have a 90 day and California is an at-will state too. So that helps a little bit with people who are abusing. But ultimately, if you're a culture fit and you can show up to work consistently, <laughs> then you're going to stick around. And I think the culture that you and I both grew up in in kitchens it was a write-up culture or it was a tyranny culture and it was like a pack your bags right now or get the fuck out of the kitchen right now type of culture. The first kitchen I ever worked in was very much that way. We're trying to do the opposite, right? We give unlimited chances. It's not like you have one chance to correct and then you're out if you can't correct. It's all very case-by-case -case specific. And ultimately, if you're a good person, you can show up and do your job consistently and you are accountable to your actions and you can communicate, then you're going to stick around with us for a long time. And we have average tenure of a few years for only having produced food for five years. I think our average tenure right now is like two and a half years, which is pretty great. People want this type of flexibility, but it's a lot of trust building, honestly. 
between the manager and the employee. And ultimately, we trust the employee when they say they're sick or they need to tend to their mental health or they need to go tend to their child or their family member. We trust them. They're telling us the truth. And then they're going to come back to work the next day. And if they don't come back to work the next day, they need to call us. And if they don't call us, then hopefully they're going to have a follow-up conversation about why. And even then, even if they're not calling us, we usually don't say you're fired on the spot. Obviously, we've separated with employees on the spot for very egregious things, but we understand that life happens. So we try and be a second slash infinite chance (laughs) culture where you get more chances as long as you're coming clean and communicating and working with us. I really feel like this is my colleague Brahman coined this term of saying we don't want to be a write-up culture, we want to be an accountability culture, right? And I think that kind of highlights what we want to instill company-wide is this culture of accountability. And ultimately, we want the employee to feel accountable to us and we want to feel accountable to them. It really resonates. I interviewed a chef two weeks ago, three weeks ago, And he was saying, I stopped writing up people that are late to work as long as they're just mildly late to work. And he goes, I used to be like really aggressive with that. He goes, but I never took the bus to work. And I said, I can guarantee you that if I took the bus to work seven days in a row, I'd be late four out of seven days. And I don't even know of the times I was late, how many times it was like my fault that I was late. There's so many variables, especially when it comes to back a house, that there does need to be flexibility. But You brought up a word that I think is super important, and it was trust. That You've got to build trust between the leaders in the organization and the frontline workers. And I think an essential element of that is effective communication. You've talked a lot about it in the past. Talk to me about the infrastructure and protocols you have in place to foster trust and communication. Well, I think it starts with the recruiting process. Right. I mean, I've been through and I know you have and so many of the listeners terrible recruiting and interview processes. And so we work really hard. We have an incredible recruiting coordinator and people operations coordinator named Trish, who makes sure that every step of the way, right, there's communication. The employee experience really starts with the exact time they look at your job posting and click apply. So we want to make sure throughout that entire process, they're being well communicated with. It doesn't mean we always get it right by any stretch of the imagination, but that's a huge part. We're also very thorough. We almost never make hires on the spot. There is a thorough interview process. One of the founders does a final interview for everyone at the company. So I get to meet everyone pretty much through that process. In the event that I'm not there, one of the other founders is there. And then it's been a little tricky in COVID, but throughout the entire employment experience, there's multiple touch points for employees, right? We do email communications, we do Slack communications, we do company all hands every month, we do breakout teams, we were doing quarterly offsites before COVID, we'll bring those back, chances for the company to gather, we do Q&A sessions, I've got an open door policy, you know, I was raised by guidance counselors, coaches, facilitators, mediators. So like, that's my life. So I've just tried to instill that into the company too. And similar to like normalizing sick call outs, it's not an easy thing for people to grasp of over communicating. Another one of those things that we say is you don't text us when you call out, you call us, we want to talk to you, right? And it's a simple little thing 
but it's in our handbook as such. And it's something that I think is important because we want to hear that you're not dying. We want to hear that you're okay. We want to have a little bit of a discourse. And I think when we've gotten so used to these sensory deprived forms of communication like text, that a lot can be lost in translation. And we have a lot of employees where English is not their native language. So we also translate all of our company meetings in Spanish. We also do translation for our email communications. We also have American Sign Language Translator right now. So in every step of the way, it's trying to embed cultural elements where communication is a focal point for both sides. And it doesn't mean, again, like I was saying, that everybody can grasp that right away. But the hope is that over time, people will become more and more comfortable with it and that we make it a part of our foundational infrastructure, that this is the culture that we want to be building and have built. Well, and you know, as a much younger restaurateur, I would have listened to this, especially like with my first bar in Hollywood. We had on average between like eight to 11 employees at any given time. I would have listened to what you just said and thought to myself, well, that's good for him. He's running a much bigger organization. I don't really need all of that in my company. But I would argue that it's most important with smaller teams. That's really where you're going to reap the benefit of those efforts because you're able to maximize the output of a smaller team, whereas with a larger team, you're going to lose a little bit through the process. Yeah, absolutely. And I think no matter what size you are, there's always an opportunity to make the charitable assumption and assume that people maybe didn't know what to do or how to do it. And you want to be building culture into your infrastructure from day one, always, but that's never how a company works, right? It's you're building it long term and over time, and you build it with the people that are there and that are giving you feedback. And I would say that's another important piece, which is we really welcome feedback and constructive criticism. And like so many blind spots have come up because I listen to employees and I've worked for companies that don't do that. But the amount of times where I just say, hey, what's going on? Can you tell me? It could have nothing to do with work, but it could have everything to do with work. And I feel like throughout time, we've realized that that's actually a big part of the ongoing learning process in developing stronger forms of communication and trust, right? Is that you have to make time, you have to listen, which a lot of us don't do, and then you have to take action on it. And proof is in the pudding there. Like over time, employees trust you when you listen and then you take action or they don't if you're not doing that. So it's a learning process, but it's a good one. Well, you've been pretty transparent about yours. I've heard you say that you have an open source business model. What does that mean to you and how can folks access the information and the processes that you've learned and you've implemented? Yeah, I think we have a long ways to go to be truly open source. I would love to eventually have every one of our tools, SOPs, docs online for just easy, open access to anyone who wants to download a P&L or look at a handbook or this kind of stuff that I wish I had had access to when I was coming up. We have started publishing stuff on our blog just about our business model, our certain costs, certain elements of the business that we're proud to share in open source. Ultimately, we want employees to have access to everything they do, but a lot of employees don't want to know everything. They only want to know what they need to know. 
but ultimately we want to be fully transparent in everything that we do because we don't have anything to hide. And I think for me personally, that will eventually extend beyond our four walls and out into the larger community. And I think is really part of how we need to be reshaping the food and hospitality industry as a whole. You know, when I first got into this industry, everyone was like, oh, don't go talk to that person. They're super secretive. And then I would go talk to them. and They're like, I'll tell you anything you want to know. I'll open up my books entirely. And I learned that this business is like, we're all in the same industry trying to accomplish the same things. And ultimately, we all kind of have each other's backs. There's some proprietary stuff that I understand people don't want to give up. But 90% of the time, I found people are really, really open to sharing. And I've valued that incredibly. I want to be able to bestow that and also ultimately gift that to all of our employees. I say to our employees a lot, like, it would be a dream of mine if you could leave this company someday and go open up your own business. Whether that's what you want to do or not, if you have the tools and the resources to do that, great. And actually, if you leave and you say, give me all this stuff, I want the suite of the 60 things that you most use to run your company. I'll be like, great, I'll go make a template of every single one and start a drive folder for you, blah, blah, blah. It'll be done in your inbox tomorrow. I don't want to hold anything just for us. It's like we created it, it should go out into the world. So we end up doing that a lot. Entrepreneurs come to us, they say, do you have this thing? We say, yep, here you go. Or employees leave, they say, do you have this thing? Yep, here you go. I mean, we were giving employees free access to kitchen space, free access to tools for a long time. We still do that, but no one's using our kitchen at the moment. But that's definitely a part of the added benefit that we don't really market, but that we want to provide for all employees. And I really do feel like everything in our industry should be shared, whether it is or not, to make for better ease of operations. A while back, I interviewed Pauline Brown, the former chairman of Louis Vuitton. And one of the first things she did when she took the big chair over was she remodeled all of the stock rooms in all of the brick and mortar Louis Vuittons, making it as luxurious as the floor itself. The reason being, she believed that if these people are going to sell a premium experience, they need to enjoy that same experience in all facets of the position. And you wrote that kitchens shouldn't be an afterthought, that every consideration should be made to make it as pleasant as guest-facing environments. I, like I'm sure a lot of the people listening, am guilty of not making it inhospitable by design, but certainly not working to make it a pleasant work environment. One of the things that you brought up that was just mind-blowing, because I thought, one, I've never seen it in a kitchen, and two, I think it would be amazing to see it more frequently is natural light and extra space outside of the tiny space that they need to work their station. Yeah. Natural light seems like a baseline. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> but you don't see it, right? <laughs> right. Natural light feels like it should be baseline. I mean, I think a lot of times having sat in a lot of conversations around kitchen design conversations, we often want to stick kitchens in the bowels of the buildings right? It's like, oh, facilities, storage, and kitchens, they can just go into the basements. That's where they've just traditionally operated. The more I want to try and uplift the industry and our employees that work within it, the more I'm thinking about, okay, what can we bring forward that can help us to create a better employee experience when you're working? And we have not checked all these boxes by any stretch of the imagination. 
We've never designed our own kitchen. We're actually embarking on that process right now. And natural light is a precursor for sure above and beyond everything else. But there's also a lot of other elements too that I would like to, that I've seen in a lot of tech offices or in other well-funded companies that I would like to bring into the kitchen. So some examples of that are like ergonomic prep tables, right? Why is someone who's five foot two prepping at the same table of someone who's six foot three? There's no rhyme or reason. So why not have sit-stand prep tables in the kitchen? Intuitive prep stations where you actually have a table, a cutting board, a compost chute, a trash chute, and a prep sink all in one consolidated unit, right? With like a little cart where you can roll your bus tubs under or your Lexans and a speed rack that's built right in for all your prep products. So those are some of the, like the smaller design projects that we've started to take on internally for ourselves, but also for clients. Dishwashing too. I mean, one of my favorite jobs in the kitchen is dishwashing. I love to wash dishes, but it is not intuitive with how it's designed or from an ergonomic standpoint or from a flow standpoint. Dish machines are designed that way, but the rest of the infrastructure is not. So just thinking through the workflow of, okay, where do the dirties get stacked when there's a huge backup stockpile? How much pounds are you lifting? What kind of pre-soak capabilities are there up until stacking and putting away dishes? I think there's so many opportunities. I know there are so many opportunities to improve the employee cooking and washing and prep and production experience. And we don't want them to be afterthoughts. So another one of the things that we're trying to promote within the client work that we do and also our own kitchens, ultimately, we want to design the happiest, healthiest kitchen around. And it takes kind of stepping back and thinking, what kind of space do I want to work in? right? What would I be proud to show my mom? And what is going to uplift the experience for anyone, whether it's a dishwasher or the executive chef, to say, okay, this is really helpful the way that this was orchestrated and designed. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? I think if I had to say anything, Josh, it would be to respect and maybe even revere food and hospitality workers. I think like so many of our blue collar industries within this country, we take for granted the immense amount of work and hard work that goes into producing something as simple as a falafel sandwich. (laughs) And I really would love to tell everyone to thank their server Go in the back of the kitchen and thank the cooks. Grab them a six-pack of beer. Throw them $10 or $100 or $1,000 if you have it. Go out of your way to show care, respect, dignity to food service workers and farm workers too, which are, again, so often left out of the conversation around how our industry and how our bellies are nourished and nurtured. These people work some of the hardest jobs in the world and need to be respected and revered like they do. That's Gabriel Cole. For more on Just Fair, go to justfair.co. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. 
Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.